15 is where we're going to be this morning. So I invite you to move to that location in your Bible, however you do that. And we're going to look at the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. There's a lot of things we take for granted, aren't there? Just this weekend, uh, Holy Week, uh, as we call it, this starting on Thursday, I, I, I was here at the church late uh, as a part of a Bible study, you know, under the fluorescent lights in a room that would have been pitch dark 100 years ago. And, and in our group was a person from Brazil and a person from India, which sure would not have happened likely 250 years ago. Uh, but the odds of it, I mean, it could have happened, but it, low. Uh, but that night, it didn't even cross my mind that something strange or odd was going on with that. Of course, there were people from different continents in the room at the same time. Didn't bat an eye. As we prepared to pray for a former member of the church who was about to undergo surgery, I was, I was able to quickly pull up a map of the town where the surgery would take place, and I noted there was a cemetery in the middle of the town, and I, I could drop in, I could take a 360-degree view of this cemetery. And, and, I, and I saw how far a drive it was from where that member lived to that hospital in seconds. Technology that was barely usable 20 years ago was done in seconds without a thought. Friday, uh, then a cleaning crew came to the church, one that we'd been contracting with during the pandemic to electrostatically spray uh, a hydrogen peroxide-based airborne solution. And, and the electrostatic spray allows it to literally wrap around any object, killing all the pathogens. And the fact that it's hydrogen peroxide means it's food safe. And so Maybe such a thing was available on an industrial level a few decades ago, but, but now I can go to any hardware store and buy the tools to stop a pandemic for a few bucks. And to do that, to let that crew in, I, I left my desktop and I grabbed my laptop and I, I worked in my car from the Wi-Fi so as to not breathe in the mix while it was still in the air. And, and all my work was just there. When I opened my laptop, yesterday, I opened an AI chatbot and asked it to compose a tweet 
advertising our church service on Sunday. I tweaked it a little bit. But I'm honest, that's become a little bit of a familiar routine to me because I find little tasks like that. I mean, how many ways can you write a 280 characters telling people to come to church on Sunday? But we have to send out the link for the live stream. It gets kind of banal and repetitive. But you know what? AI is good at banal and repetitive things. And it doesn't care that they're banal and repetitive. It doesn't get tired. And just in a few weeks, I've become accustomed to talking to a computer to tell it how to talk to you. And if that seems weird, how weird is it that we already accept that we can communicate through anonymous corporate avatars anyway to millions of people? You don't contact Joe Smith, the director of corporate relations at DoorDash. You contact a little icon that says DoorDash on it, and you pretend like it's a person behind it. And we just take all of this for granted. 2,000 years ago, we might have rarely met someone with a much different accent or skin color. And if we were up late, we were doing it with an oil-burning lamp. We didn't know where our friend's hospital was. It was just over there somewhere. We would have worked slowly by hand on any documents we were creating. And if a pandemic broke out, we died in insane numbers. To publicize something, we painstakingly went through the streets, person by person. And we take it all for granted how easily but some things we should not take for granted. Or if we do, we do it at our own peril. And that was the situation of, of some Christians living in the ancient city of Corinth. Or that, at least that was the fear of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to them this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. They were taking for granted some of the most basic facts of the Christian faith that they had so recently adopted. In fact, they were taking them so much for granted that they were losing sight of the fact that so many other dear truths hang on those fundamental commitments. It was like they were playing a game of spiritual Jenga where they were ignoring all of the blocks at the bottom of the base and then over time they started to forget why those blocks were at the base at all and began removing them. They were so focused on the top of the tower and how interesting the structure looked up there that they didn't realize how close to toppling over it was. Hearing that they might be starting to lose sight of the basics, Paul writes this letter in part to call them to hold on to the matters of first importance, as he calls them. And that's what we want to speak a little bit about this morning. Paul is writing to people who would call themselves followers of Christ. And Paul says he wants to remind them of the gospel that he has preached to them. Now, many years before, Paul had gone to the city of Corinth in person, which was in what we would call southern Greece, 
uh, about a third of the way from Athens to Olympia, the host of the Olympic Games. And, and Paul calls this message a gospel, which is a word we sometimes say means good news. And that's true. It's a compound word in Greek. It has a prefix that means good attached to the word news or message. But what's often missed when we say that is that it was a word that was used particularly for announcing the good news of a major military victory. So in the days before AI chatbots and always connected computers and high-speed Wi-Fi and constant electricity, you would know of a great victory by the king or the general or the commander after they dispatched a man from the battlefield back to the city, back to the capital, to proclaim the wonderful message that they had been victorious. The Christian message is no different. It's a message about the good news of victory. But victory's not always good news, is it? It really depends on what side you're on. I've been tracing my family history. And it's interesting that so many of my German relatives came to the United States between World War I and World War II. And they received their citizenship, I believe all of them, before World War II began. And, and I can see some of their citizenship documents. It's interesting to read them. I don't know how they read in 2023, but, you know, in the 20s and in the 30s and in that period, they renounced their, their, their citizenship and renounced all allegiance to the German Reich. In fact, I've seen draft cards for many of these relatives. They registered for the Selective Service Program of the United States ready to take up arms to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States. I'd love to be able to talk to some of those men and women about how they, they felt about that war. Certainly they must have been torn uh, by having family still back home in Bavaria despite the unspeakable atrocities of the Nazi regime, the depths of which many, much of the American public did not understand until the war drew to a close. But when the Allies won, that was good news for them. Not only did it mean an end to the war, it meant they had won. Their side had won because they had renounced their stake in the German enterprise and put in their lot with the American enterprise. Conversely, if Germany had won, that would have been bad news for them. In the same way, the gospel message about a victory is only really good news if you're among those who are attached to the party who won the victory. If you're neutral, if you're Switzerland, you might not care. And if you're attached to the side that lost, well, you're not going to find this message to be very good news at all, are you? Now, it's the content of that message, the content of this good news of victory that Paul wants to remind the Corinthian Christians of. As for how it's a message of victorious good news, exactly, well, 
let's return to that question in a moment. I, I think it's going to become clear. For the moment, Paul says that this news is a message that gives them their footing. It's where they, as Christians, take their stand. So we get that it's foundational. And he says that by this message of good news, they are being saved. That's interesting. How is one saved? We might use another word, rescued, by good news. And from what is the person being rescued? Those are also good questions. Hold on to those. And then Paul says that is true. You are saved by it if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. That word he preached, that message is, is the good news. It's the same, it's a synonym here. So it's something that must be held to over time. There's a, a danger, it seems, of letting it go. And then, as Paul says, believing in vain. That's what he's concerned about for these Christians in Corinth. And it just may be that some of us are in danger of the same things, believing in vain. Believing this good news message, but somehow not holding on to it, and as a result, not falling into the category of those who are saved by it. So, as this passage kind of gets started, we, we, we're kind of left with three groups of people. There are people who have not heard this good news proclaimed yet, for whatever reason. Then there are people who have heard it but did not rejoice over this good news because of their loyalties. There could potentially be two subgroups here, those who found it irrelevant or uninteresting and those who saw it as bad news instead of as good news. And then the third group is those who heard the good news and they rejoiced over it but they also fall into two subgroups, those who hold fast to it and are then somehow rescued by it, and those who, as Paul says, believe in vain. They don't hold fast to it and consequently are not rescued by it. Now, chances are uh, you can probably easily throw yourself into one of those three categories. Maybe the subset categories I gave you. Maybe you're not sure if you're in one of those two main categories. Maybe you're not quite sure if I in subset A or subset B. But you can probably pretty easily identify which of the three big categories you're in. But I think even there, those subcategories are going to become clear here by the end of this message. And my goal is to go those who have not heard an opportunity to remedy that. And to give those who think it's irrelevant or bad news an opportunity to rethink that. And an opportunity for those who have believed in vain to change course. And an opportunity for those who hold fast to be encouraged. So that's where we are going. The way we're going to do that, though, is to break down what Paul says is at the heart of this gospel. 
he writes in verse 1 that he wants to remind them of the gospel. And in verse 3, he says that what he's writing is the matters of first importance. That means these are the most significant parts of that good news. It's not all of it. It's the most critical. It's the most crucial. It's not the whole sum of it. To give you an analogy, no one has a complete and exhaustive knowledge of American history. But you might say that there's a few facts that are absolutely critical to know. And that if you don't know them, you simply have an inadequate grasp of American history. And we could probably debate this a little bit, but we might say a person really needs to know how and why Europeans and Africans came to settle this land in the 17th century. How and why something of a consensus formed over the need of a revolution against the British and how they then won that revolution. How and why we end up in a civil war less than 100 years after our founding, which still remains the deadliest conflict in our history. How and why we spread from 13 colonies on the Atlantic coast to a territory nearly the size of Europe. How and why we got involved in World War II and emerged to become a world superpower. How and why a civil rights movement took hold in the 1950s and 1960s. Maybe there's others. I'm not a historian. I like history, but I'm not a historian. I don't pretend to be one. I'm sure a historian would tell me I'm missing something, even in a very truncated list of must-haves. The Second Great Awakening might be one, but, but you get the gist. It's really difficult to understand how America got here without understanding something about those six items. But it's an important analogy because there's a tendency for some Christians to think that the gospel is these facts that Paul is about to bring up or something very close to them. But that's not quite right, and that's not what Paul says. If the gospel were an engagement ring, these facts might be the diamond the thing that at least historically, not as much anymore, but historically makes it an engagement ring and not just a golden band. The thing that makes it ridiculously expensive. And just like you can spend your life digging deeper and deeper into American history, you can spend eternity digging deeper and deeper into the gospel. But you have to have at least these four things down, or you don't have the basics. So what are those things? Paul makes, like I said, four points. Point number one is that Jesus died. Now, if you joined us uh, Friday night, you know, we spent some time emphasizing and remembering just that fact. Jesus died. And it's very important that you understand that the person our faith is named after Christ died. And we celebrate that fact. The death of Zoroaster was a tragedy for Zoroastrians. And the death of Baha'u'llah was a time of mourning for members of the Baha'i faith 
But we say Jesus died and we celebrate it. Jesus' followers mourned initially because they didn't understand what was happening. The reason why we celebrate a death, which sounds morbid and macabre, is that Jesus did not die merely as a martyr for a madman's call, uh, a cause. He died, as Paul said, for our sins. In short, sins of other people were the fundamental significance of Jesus' death. We can sum it up this way. Sin is rebellion or, or treason against God. God is the rightful ruler of the universe, and he is no bureaucrat, and he is no tyrant. He is loving. He cares for us. He cares for his creation. And yet we are indifferent. And our indifference is sin. Because we don't give honor to the one to whom honor is due. Instead, we give our honor to other people and other things. Sometimes our sin is not so passive as indifference. Instead, we actively rebel. We know what is good and what is right, and yet we pursue what is wrong and corrupt anyway for the sake of our own pleasure or the sake of our own ease. We do it with our actions, but also with our words and with our thoughts. And our rebellion deserves a rebel's punishment. As the Bible says elsewhere, the wages of sin is death. Or in the Psalms we're taught, affliction will slay the wicked. And so we are under a death sentence for our failure to treat God as God. But Jesus died for our sins. Who sins? Well, the hour there is a group of Christians, isn't it? The author is Paul and a couple of his fellow Christian co-workers, and the recipients are those in the Christian community in Corinth. That's the hour. These Christ followers had Jesus die on behalf of their sins. It's as if Jesus died because otherwise they would have to. Now, that might be something interesting, right? Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is, he was going to set the many free from the curse of the death sentence due to sin by giving his life in their place. And that might be something to rejoice over, something to celebrate, yeah? But Paul also says that Jesus did this in accordance with the Scriptures. He means that what Jesus did was foretold centuries before in the Old Testament Scriptures. So, I'll give you a couple here, uh, but consider what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 
53, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Or consider what David wrote. Isaiah wrote that about 700 or so years before the death of Jesus Christ, but consider what David wrote about 700, or excuse me, about 1,000 years before the death of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
Both of those passages speak of an anointed king chosen by God, suffering and dying. And the imagery in, the, in those passages is, is evocative of Jesus' death on the cross and the surrounding events. And Isaiah says plainly, speaking to the faithful of ancient Israel, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. Jesus died for sin according to the Scriptures. Paul's second point, the second thing he needs to say that is a matter of first importance is that Jesus was buried. Isaiah spoke to that as well in the passage we just read when he wrote, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It might seem like a minor point that if Jesus died, he was also buried. But for the early Christians, it seemed to be especially important to insist on this point. Not only was it foretold long ago, which would be enough, God said it, and then it happened, so we want to give God credit. But it meant that Jesus was really, truly dead. He didn't merely revive. He was assuredly dead. Jesus was buried in what was probably a cave-like tomb. He was wrapped in burial cloths, meaning he was handled thoroughly immediately after being taken off that cross. Of course, he was executed by Roman soldiers whose job it was to ensure that the people who were supposed to die, died. But after that, some of his followers took his body down and they handled it long enough to fully wrap it in burial cloths and transport it to a tomb. Rigor mortis begins to set in after about two hours and progresses over the next several no doubt his followers who wrapped this body noticed his body becoming less and less cooperative with their manipulations. Jesus was truly dead. And then the tomb was sealed with a heavy stone and Roman soldiers were stationed as guards to prevent any shenanigans. He was dead. He was buried. Everyone knew he was buried and everyone knew where he was buried. And that brings us to the third point that Paul makes, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why we're here today. Not Easter. Sunday. That's why we gather as a church on Sundays to worship Jesus. As Christians, we who are Christians, we live our lives to worship Jesus. But we do so on Sundays because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, and we try to honor God with one day of our week in particular. But for Christ's followers, every day is Easter. We live in a perpetual Easter. I mean, I chose a particularly Easter-themed passage for this morning. And we chose some songs to accompany it because our culture has come to expect it. But if you're new to us, if you haven't been around us long, this isn't really very different from what we do any other Sunday. We worship the resurrected Jesus. If you come back next week, you're going to get something very much like this. 
There's no bait and switch here. Because every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrected Jesus. When it came to Jesus' death, the most important thing isn't so much that he died. I mean, that's important. But lots of people die. What's significant is why he died for our sins. But when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, the fact of the matter is kind of a big deal on its own, isn't it? A man raising from the dead merits our attention. It says something. And it's essential. There is no Christianity without it. All of Christianity presumes it happened. Not as a metaphor. Not as a nice idea. Not as... Uh, an image or an aspiration, but a true statement of objective reality. A flesh and blood human being who was clinically dead and buried got up from the grave some 36 hours later. And while that fact is important, it is impressive in its own right, the why of it is very important too. See, those early Christians were convinced and repeatedly taught that Jesus' resurrection was just a foretaste of a resurrection of all human beings, a resurrection to judgment where they would answer to Jesus himself. The Apostle Peter, for example, preached a sermon that you can read in, in synopsis form in Acts chapter 10 where he explains about Jesus. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. You might be tempted to say, well, <laughs> that, that was easy to believe in the ancient world, but this is 2023. We don't believe in people raising from the dead anymore. But hold on to that thought, because the reason Paul is stressing this point so much is that it was not easy to believe in the ancient world either. Not for some of these Christians living in Corinth. But not for the reason you might probably think. See, for very different reasons they found that kind of offensive. Many of them were persuaded by the philosophies of the day that thought that the physical body was unimportant at best, and bad or evil at worst. And so for them, the idea that Jesus would be raised to life in a physical body was a terrible idea. Had to be false. And so some of them had begun to say, there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. They were, they were looking forward to getting rid of their physical forms and living a spiritual-only existence. That would be a better way to do it. 
But Paul nips that in the bud. You, you, if you look in uh, chapter 15, if you're still there, you can drop down a few verses to 16 and 17. And, and Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. No resurrection means that the Christian message is empty. It's worthless. That's not my words. That's the words of the Bible itself. That's the words of the Apostle Paul. The Christian message promises a way to deal with your sin that is separating you from God, that is placing you under God's just condemnation. It is telling you about how you can escape that judgment and condemnation. But if there's no resurrection, then none of that's true. See, if, if Jesus says, I'm dying for your sins, and he goes and he gets himself crucified by an angry mob and a disinterested bureaucrat named Pontius Pilate, and he stays dead, then what did his death accomplish? How do we know if it did any good? If I go and run out in front of the Healthline bus and, and scream that I'm dying for your sins, well, that might be very generous of me, but who will pay for my sins? I only have one life to give. If sin brings death and Jesus died, then sin won. Sin gobbled up Jesus and took its payment and collected. But what if Jesus was bigger than sin? What if Jesus was stronger than death? What if Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, God in the flesh? Then maybe infinite storehouses of God's riches in the goodness and the perfection and the sinlessness of Jesus could pay off sin in full. Then Jesus would defeat sin. He would be the victor over death. And if he was the victor, then he would have to rise. And that's what he did. He rose because he won the victory. That's why it's a gospel. It's why it's a good news of a battle victory. King Jesus rode into the greatest battle of cosmic history. He took on the enemy that has been attacking and winning against us since the beginning, death. And he won the victory. And we, like Paul, proclaim the good news that there has been a great victory and it's been won, that the king is returning with the spoils of war. So get ready. We've been sent from the battlefield to tell the people of the city the king is coming with the spoils of war. Be ready for his return. 
And so Paul celebrates that at the end of the chapter in words that become famous. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for those who are on the side of the conquering king, his victory is their victory. Just like Americans at home could celebrate their victory in World War II, the followers of Christ sitting helpless at home can celebrate the victory that Christ won for them. And that's a message worth sharing. And that too, like Paul said, was foretold by the prophets of old. David prophesied, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the realm of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption, that is decomposition and decay. And in Isaiah, in that same passage we looked at, uh, said even as the servant would die for sin, somehow, somehow, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. In the resurrection of the Christ, that mystery is solved. It brings us to the fourth point that Paul makes. If the second point was very much about demonstrating the truth of the first point, namely, Jesus really died. Proof? He was buried. The fourth point is very much about demonstrating the truth of the third. Namely, Jesus rose from the dead. Evidence we saw him. So Paul writes, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That Jesus rose from the dead was not something that happened in some mystical, invisible state. It wasn't something the followers of Jesus just all got together and agreed upon to say. They had I witnesses of his resurrection. They knew that he had very, very much been dead, and then they very, very much saw him alive. Cephas saw him. That's Peter. Peter's Greek. Cephas is Aramaic. Same person. The 12 apostles saw him. Various groups of the disciples saw him. That Paul doesn't mention, by, uh, doesn't mention specifically. Uh, at one point, Paul says Jesus appeared to over 500 followers at once. Most of them, he says, are still alive. In other words, you can go talk to them. That's what he's saying to the Corinthians. Go speak with them. You can fact check this. It's sort of an insane thing to claim if you can't back it up. It's sort of the kind of thing you say just before your entire movement falls apart, if it's false. Paul also saw Jesus. He saw Jesus in a very different way than the rest. It was some time later, after Jesus had already ascended to heaven, and Paul was on his way to imprison and maybe kill some Christians. That's how he was living his life. 
And Jesus revealed himself to Paul from heaven such that suddenly Paul realized that the Lord he was serving was not the Lord he thought he was serving. Because the Lord that he thought he was serving was actually the resurrected Jesus. He was serving himself or he was serving demons or he was serving Satan, but he was not serving the God of heaven and earth. And when he saw the glorified Jesus, he knew Jesus is Lord. Whatever you make of the claims of Christianity, you have to deal with this. Scores and scores of people claimed to have seen the resurrected resurrected Jesus. A Jesus who had been killed by the Roman soldiers, entombed, and then put under the guard of Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers who would have had to guard him under the penalty of death. The body was not getting out of that tomb absent a miracle. And if anyone wanted to doubt it, there was a simple solution. The Roman or Jewish officials only had to produce the body. They didn't. And the simple reason was Jesus is alive. Now, these four facts, Jesus died for our sins, the hour being those who follow him, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he appeared to many of his followers, make up the matters of first importance when it comes to the gospel. This good news of a great victory. We have a a taste of what that victory is. Jesus conquers sin, and so he makes a way to bring the terrible reign of death to an end. And in fact, when, when Jesus does raise the dead to that judgment that we spoke of before, the Apostle John paints this vivid picture of the final act of his triumph. He says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades. Hades is the realm of the dead. It's the place where dead people go. It's not hell as we imagine it. Death and Hades are destroyed. It is a triumph, not just over death, but over evil itself. King Jesus wins, and he will reign forever. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is our blessed hope. And we dare not let go of it. Hold it tight. This is our salvation. We desperately need rescuing from our sin. And Jesus has made a way. But do not be satisfied with merely scratching the surface of the gospel. 
Know that these are the bullet points of the matters of first importance, but the well is as deep as eternity. Do not allow your faith to be a shallow one, but be encouraged and hold to this great hope. If, though, you find yourself as one who thinks this message is not for you, well, maybe you see yourself as against it, hostile to it in some way, or maybe you just simply see yourself as indifferent. Let me uh, challenge you that indifference really isn't an option, or that maybe a better way to put that is indifference is not really a neutral option. It might feel like it, it's not. Because being indifferent toward God is a bit like being indifferent toward your parents. Assuming, I know this isn't the case for everyone, but assuming they were at least somewhat caring and somewhat loving and halfway decent or a quarter way decent, then you owe your finite temporary custodians a measure of respect and honor and acting indifferently toward them would be insulting and disrespectful and arrogant but we're not speaking of your parents your finite temporary custodians we are talking about the infinite creator of the universe you owe him your all he made you you owe your complete affection your respect and your honor indifference in the face of that is truly a hostility you can imagine if someone you very much cared for, who very much cared about you, gave you a precious, expensive gift that they labored over and carefully thought through and thought out how they could bless you with this gift. And upon seeing it, you simply shrugged your shoulders and said, meh. They'd be insulted, wouldn't they? They'd be offended. Depending on the gift, depending on the relationship, you can imagine they might not want to speak to you for a long time. Maybe, ever. But God has given you your very life. Your indifference is hostility. And hostility is not the posture you want before a king riding home from victory the spoils of war in his hands. He is coming. He is coming to judge. That beautiful picture of Jesus destroying death is wonderful. But listen how that picture continues. He says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
the picture of these things then goes on in that book of Revelation. This is toward the end of that book. It continues by looking at the glories and treasures of Jesus' rule. When all sin and evil has been put away, these treasures will be enjoyed by those who welcome his coming. He is returning. All of us, all of us were once enemies. We were traitors. We were citizens of another country. A country ruled, whether we knew it or not, by powers and forces that were bent against the king. But we immigrated. We naturalized. We traded our citizenship. We renounced our old country and gave up our rights to her so that when we see the king come riding, we celebrate with joy. How will you respond when he returns? There were Germans who, who left Germany and threw in their lot with America and her ideals. But there were also Nazis who left Europe and sought to hide here and in other places and make a new life. Like Yekif Poli, who was hunted down for his participation in the atrocities at a Nazi concentration camp. He was stripped of his citizenship in 2003, but he had been a citizen here in the United States for decades. And finally brought to justice in 2018 when he was arrested in Queens at the age of 95. He was extradited to Germany, put on trial, convicted, and sentenced. Like Pauli, it will not be enough to merely be in the right place at the right time, to be sitting in a church pew somewhere, or to be sitting with the right books on your bookshelf. There will be no escape for those whose hearts are not truly aligned with the victor, King Jesus. You can pretend to love the king, but he knows who still sympathizes with the enemy. As Peter said in that sermon from Acts 10, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. But hear this also that Peter said, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Would you be among those who renounce your citizenship in this world and all that it has to offer you? all of its possessions, 
its bank accounts, its promises of glory, of fame, of importance, of clout, of family, of what our family does, whatever we might put to our name, everything that this world clamors for. Would you renounce it for the sake of throwing in your lot with the enterprise of King Jesus? Because he is returning with the spoils of war. Maybe you're in that last group who had never heard. Now you have heard. What will you do about it? Let's pray. Oh God, make us to be among those who called by your name hold fast to the gospel which we heard preached, which we once believed, which now saves us. May we not be among those who believe in vain, who believe with a shallow and half-hearted belief that perishes in the weeds of greed and the heat of persecution. But may we be like those planted in deep, rich soil that grow up to eternal life and bear fruit. Father, rid those here who are indifferent of their indifference. Rid those who are hostile of their hostility. Open the ears of those who have not heard. that they too might find a new and better country and a new and better citizenship. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Subjects of the great king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us praise him in song one more time.